Is that okay? Can you hear in the back? Yeah. So, um, good morning. Nice to be here. I closed my eyes early and then opened and there were so many people. <laughs> there weren't so many when I first sat down. So, welcome. Hmm. The um, talk or words I'd like to share with you today are a kind of um, poetic meandering <laughs> through a, a series of um, topics, uh, beginning with um, talking about talking, talking about speech. Um, and I, I've been teaching a class. It's actually a class that I teach by phone for people who are um, in various places around the country. It's a very interesting group because we, we actually sit on the phone <laughs> um, together. And, um, and then we've, we've been studying this last round of classes, the kind of three middle steps of the Eightfold Path, um, which begins with right speech. And I found as I was teaching the class and this particular topic again, the topic of speech, right speech or wise speech or appropriate speech, each time I circle back on this topic, I'm struck again and again by how useful it is and how potent it can be as a practice, particularly, of course, as a practice in our everyday lives. And this time, as um, I worked with uh, traditional teachings and looked at um, aspects of this, what the Buddha taught about speech, um, I was struck by the um, difference between the way it's often emphasized, which is what I think of as the, basically the four do nots around speech, which sound a little bit like the Ten Commandments, but there's only four, which are do not lie, do not slander, do not engage in harsh speech, which I, I think in, in modern terms basically means don't use bad words, <laughs> um, and don't engage in idle speech. Um, so I'll circle back in a little bit to talk about those a little bit more, but um, what, what really um, had an impact for me this time going through was the, the flip side of all that, which is not so much just the do nots of speech, but the potential power and potency that speech can have and how rather than just emphasizing what not to do, that we can take on using words in a way that can be quite beneficial. So as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, it's a little bit daunting to be talking about the power of speech being the one in the front of the room speaking to all of you. <laughs> um, so let me tell you a story about this, um, the potential power of speech. This is a story about a family um, who had an ailing child. And any of you who are parents know the kind of anxiety and difficulty that that can provoke. So in this family, the parents invited in um, a Sufi healer to help tend to their sick child. So the Sufi healer comes in and goes to the bed where the child is laying and 
says some prayers or mantras or some expresses something in words um, over the bed where the child is. And then he comes out and um, says to the parents, well, now your child will be healed. And the parents, I guess, are a bit skeptical. Um, And I imagine they're skeptical and they're also upset because they have this sick child. And so they kind of accost the poor Sufi healer and say, you know, how how can you say that? And all you did was go in and say some words, and now you say that our child is going to be healed, you know, berate him in some way. And without missing a beat, as is often the case with these Sufi healers and masters and so on, the, the Sufi master turns to them and says, what do you know? You know nothing. And he just begins berating them right back, you know. You invited me here to do this, and now you're doubting what I say. You know nothing about what I'm capable of. You know nothing about the situation. You, And here are these upset parents that are already, you know, unsettled. And they begin to get more and more angry, and they turn red in the face and start shaking and so on. And, of course, just in the right moment, the Sufi healer says, you see, If these words of mine can cause that kind of reaction in you, why do you doubt that other words that I say couldn't have a healing impact? So you you can see in this that we can tend to... uh, It's easier to appreciate the damaging impact of our speech. It's easier to see in some way. Um, But probably... All of you at some point were um, encouraged either to come into the practice of the Dharma or somewhere along the line in your own training, practice. You read something or you heard something that actually inspired and opened you, that helped you, encouraged you to step in further. Um, And I think it's useful to remember that that's also the case. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a little bit more now about the, um, the do nots piece, and then we'll come back to this, to the power of speech piece. And, and I want to um, circle back on the, the more traditional teaching of don't lie, don't slander, don't, don't use harsh speech and don't use idle speech, because... Um, there's two parts. One is that when I was looking at this again, it sounds like the Ten Commandments, do not, do not, do not, a bunch of rules. But if you look at any one of those categories it, and you try to practice with it, it becomes clear pretty quickly that it's, this is not an, an either-or kind of thing. You don't go through your life either completely honest or a complete liar. There's a huge amount of gray area right? So if someone comes to you and says, how are you doing? And you've just, you know, gotten bad news about something and you don't immediately disclose all of that and you say, I'm okay, I'm fine. Is that a lie? Um, If you are to, I was thinking the example as I was driving down the highway to get here, Um, in terms of harsh speech, if you yell at someone you know, and say, don't do that, and are upset, that's very different than if you are yelling at a child who's about to step out into traffic. Don't do that, right? So 
what this points to as central and is true in all of the um, teachings about karma and speech, the act of speaking is considered verbal, verbal karma, karma meaning action. We do something and it has a consequence. And the truth is, of course, we can never control the consequences of our actions because it's very complex, all of the pieces that go into that. But what's often emphasized is our intention. And you can see the difference between, you know, it's often said, the difference between a knife in the hand of a thief and a knife in the hand of a surgeon. Same action, potentially, completely different intention. Just as the example with if I yell at someone or I yell at a child about to be in harm's way. So um, as we engage with even the, these traditional teachings of do not, do not, um, that that's really the emphasis there that we look at um, not trying to put ourselves in a box, but we use the teachings as a way to begin to examine our life and our intention. There's a beautiful um, teaching from the Buddha to his son, Rahula, where he is talking to Rahula about speech, and uh, it's called Reflection for Spoken Karma. Um, And what I love about this teaching is that Um, The Buddha isn't just saying to his son, you know, don't say bad words or something like that. What What he's saying is, here are some things to pause and consider and reflect on before you speak. In other words, he's asking him, he's giving him a tool for how to uh, examine his own intention. And by doing that, he's asking his son to take responsibility himself rather than trying to control him by giving him rules to follow. So when I read this the first time, I thought, oh, this is great teaching about speech, but it's also a beautiful um, example of really good parenting. (laughs) So I'll read it to you. So um, the Buddha's, uh, this is from a larger piece called um, Advice to Rahula. So he says, Rahula, when you desire to do any verbal karma, meaning speak. First, reflect upon that karma. This verbal karma that I desire to do, does it lead to harm for myself? Does it lead to harm for others? Or does it lead to harm for both sides? Is it an unwholesome verbal action with suffering as its return and suffering as its result? Rahula, if you reflect and then feel that it is so, then you should not do such a verbal action. This is beautiful, very simple teaching, but he's saying pause, consider, reflect before you act, before you speak. This, I think, is wise advice for all of us. Um, And many of you may have heard there's a kind of pithy um, set of questions that's often described um, that is drawn out of this. There are other teachings where the Buddha also gives um, uh, parameters for what to think about before you speak. But um, I, I'm, uh, I, I really like the three questions to consider. Is it true? This is before you speak to consider. Is it true, what I'm going to say? Is it necessary? This, I think, would keep us from that category called idle speech. <laughs> Is it true? 
Is it necessary and is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary and is it kind? So um, I always imagine when I hear teachings like this, what a different kind of world we would have (laughs) if that was what was taught in school, you know, instead of grammar and punctuation and so on. What if that's what we were teaching our kids, not to mention ourselves, of course, that we could do that as well. Um, But there's more to the story. So the second part of the commentary here, or the description of Buddha's um, discourse to his son, um, he goes on and he says, um, if you reflect and feel that this verbal action which I desire to do does not lead to harm for myself, does not lead to harm for others, and does not lead to harm for both sides. It is a wholesome verbal action and has joy as its return and joy as its result. Then, Rahula, you should do such a verbal action. So he's not only saying don't, 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 don't. He's also saying consider Is it wholesome? Will it bring joy? And in that case, actually, you should say it. This is, um, I think of often in a a lot of the places that I work and people that I work with, it's so easy, I think, for us to go to what's negative, what's wrong, what's not working. And it takes a bit of intentionality to... Um, pay attention to and then speak to what's right, what's good, what's beautiful, what's wholesome, and to say it, not just to notice it, but actually to say it out loud. There's a certain kind of vulnerability, I think, that it, that's required to do that. But that's part of the teaching as well, sort of, as I said, the flip side of it, of the do-nots. So the power of speech Well, I was thinking as I was driving again down here, this is a great opportunity. I got a little bit lost again today because I think I'm thinking about the talk and I, anyway, that's another story. I did make it this time, so I was, I was, uh, I had lots of people help me along the way, which was always a great teaching. (laughs) I had to stop and ask for directions a few times and it's always so great, I think, to find um, when you're a little bit rattled how people can be really kind. So it it was actually a lovely um, way to get here this morning. But the the um, uh, just like the kind words of those strangers who helped me get here, um, the Buddha taught um, and spoke for years. And in his speaking, he was helpful to people, not just he wasn't just nice and giving them directions on how to get to IMC, which would have been helpful, too. But he actually spoke in a way that helped people wake up. This was sort of the ultimate benefit of words. Um, and if you see in, um, if you look at the um, Zen literature, there are um, a whole, whole series of texts, koan texts, that describe interactions, mostly between teachers and students, in which somebody wakes up. This is um, a demonstration of how it is that Um, insight, that seeing into the truth, that coming home to ourselves, to what's true, to what's real, doesn't just happen in isolation. 
it happens through dialogue, through discourse, through words, that there is that potential, that words can have that kind of power. I always, um, whenever I think about this, whenever I speak to this, I always hear in my mind the, um, the, the recording I have is a little bit scratchy, but nonetheless so um, resonant and potent of um, the words of um, Dr. Martin Luther King speaking. You know, I have a dream. Those words were so powerful and continue to resonate years and years, decades after. And so if Martin Luther King's words, if the Buddha's words can help um, awaken, inspire, um, so can we. We can also have the aspiration to have our words touch something, awaken something in people. So again, I find that um, I've, I find myself both inspired by that and also a bit daunted, especially as I said, as the one speaking in front of the room. Hmm, that's like a, a big, a uh, lot of expectation there. And um, I think that the last time I was here, I also told this story about the Buddha's first attempt to speak after his awakening, which I'll read you again because it seems pertinent to this topic, and it's just a great story. Um, And it's funny to me that I don't know how long ago it was that I was here last, but at least a year. And the same story is coming up, so it must be a good one. (laughs) So um, uh, after the Buddha was awakened, um, you know, initially he didn't want to speak, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. And he didn't want to speak because he didn't think people would understand that anyone could get what what he'd seen, the, the sort of beauty enormity of the truth that he'd seen. But fortunately for all of us, um, one of the gods who was able with his omniscient seeing and hearing and so on to see into the mind of the Buddha noticed that that's what the Buddha was thinking and kind of zipped down from the heavens and said, please, please, you know, world-honored one, now that the Buddha was awakened, um, and used the beautiful language, "There there are beings with little dust in their eyes, In other words, there are people who have a little confusion left. (laughs) You may find yourself in that category. There's a little confusion left, but they're not so confused that with your coming forth and with your speaking, that that little bit of dust could be removed, that there could be insight, awakening, that could happen. And so the Buddha agrees to, to speak. And he's... Um, walking along the road, and he, the first person he meets is a, a wandering ascetic. Um, his name was the wanderer Upaka. And Upaka sees the Buddha in his radiance. You know, he was a very beautiful man and prince before he was awakened. And you could imagine what he looked like after this kind of glow, right? And um, so Upaka stops him and says, Excuse me, you are so radiant and bright. Your face is so clear. Surely you must have some wonderful realization. What kind of practice do you do? How have you gotten this? Who are you? And who is your teacher? So, you know, it's a pretty innocent question. He's saying, essentially, I want some of that. Whatever it is you've got, I would like some of that. And I I have this funny memory of when I was in my mid-20s and I first came into practice and I went 
to the San Francisco Zen Center. And in my mind, I remember thinking that the people with the bald heads and the robes, and they looked kind of severe on the outside in some way, and it was a little scary. But there was something else. There was something in there was a quality of presence. There was a quality of kindness and openness also. And even though my rational mind was kind of picking apart how weird this was, there was another part of me that felt just that, like whatever it is they have, I want some of that. So I imagine that um, this was similar for Upaka. So the Buddha responds. These are his first words after waking up. He says, I have no teacher. I am fully self-enlightened. In fact, I am the only enlightened being in the entire world. There is no one I can look to as my teacher or my elder. I alone am fully awakened. Now, is it true? Right? Is it true? Is what he said true? Actually, yes, it's true. Is it necessary? Is it kind? Maybe. Wasn't so skillful, however, with him saying that in that way. And in the text, it's just one little line, but it says, uh, Upaka the Wanderer says, good for you, friend. <laughs> yes. And shaking his head, he quickly left by another path. Right? So he kind of scurries off, like, blah. And you can imagine some of you, you come off retreat, right, and somebody sees you on the street and says, wow, you look really radiant and glowing, which you might, coming off of retreat. Oops. Uh-oh. Oh. Do we have some tissue? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. The excitement of the story. <laughs> anyway, and you say to them, I, 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 and they go, blah, I'm getting out of here, and they run away. You okay there? Yep. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, oh, here comes more. Um, I, I actually find some consolation in this, given the potential of speech. We have a whole cleanup crew here in the front. Thank you. It's wonderful. Um, so, given the potential, it's interesting that. I'm describing the Buddha's faux pas, and here we have, you know, oops, mindlessly knocking over the glass of water. You see, lots of people come to help. Um, so the, the Buddha's first effort at speaking was, you know, it didn't go so well, actually. I find that somewhat reassuring, and particularly reassuring because he didn't give up. You know, he didn't want to speak. This God came down and said, please, please, please go speak. He tries it. It doesn't work out very well. Guy runs away from him, you know. So you could imagine, again, he might say, well, forget it. I'm just going to go back and be silent and enjoy my awakening on my, by my own. But he doesn't. And in fact, over time, and if you read the Buddhist scriptures, he becomes extremely skillful in his speech, such that the Buddha is able to speak... <laughs> There's these stories where, you know, that the Buddha is talking to this huge audience, you know, and there are hundreds of arhats and so on and so forth. And anyway, in the audience, it'll say at the end, and at the end of the talk, you know, 300 people awoke. I think, wow, that's really something. So thank you very much. Um, So he, um, he got better 
That's the good news. And I think encouraging for all of us to know that it's okay to make mistakes. We're not going to have to. We don't have to be perfect in our in our efforts to speak. Um, and we can keep trying. So the Buddha was, in the end, you know, able to really meet diff- very different kinds of people right where they are. He spoke to kings and warriors and farmers and housewives and business people and prostitutes. And he could meet them and say just the right thing for that person to help them awaken. He was quite versatile in that way. So there is, as I've been studying more myself, the, um, the teachings, the direct teachings of the Buddha. There's a particular passage that I want to um, share and underscore um, where the Buddha describes, um, it's not the Buddha speaking, it's the language that describes what happens for people in response to the Buddha speaking. In other words, when, we, when it says all these people woke up, what happens? What, what was that? And the text says, so the Buddha speaking, and then what happens is, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in, the, in him or her. The spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in him or her. So the Buddha speaks and some vision of the truth, some vision of reality, some vision of how things really are arises for the person who's been, who's been listening, who's been spoken to. And this is a kind of surprising part to me. The spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in him or her. All that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. That's it. That's the vision of the Dharma that equals this person woke up when it says that in the scriptures, when it says that in the text. All that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. It doesn't say, you know, they saw bright lights and were levitating off the ground or experienced, you know, eternal bliss and happiness. And No, this is what they saw. They saw in a very deep way into the truth of how things are. And in particular, the truth of impermanence, the truth of change, the truth that nothing lasts. And it's interesting, I think, that, you know, on one level, this is very obvious. Everyone here in the room, if you think back a few years ago, a few years back, and even a few years back from that, you will get that you're not the same as you were then. If you try to sit in an older body, for example, it may be full of more aches and pains than it was some time ago. It, it's, um, you know, it's not rocket science, as they say. However, there's a difference between understanding the truth of impermanence and really understanding the truth of impermanence. And um, often it's described that there's three levels of insight. There's the level of insight that comes from hearing, which is essentially what you're doing now, um, which, which means something spoken, you know, so I'm speaking, or the Buddha spoke, and somebody heard something, they heard it and they understood it. That's the first level of insight. 
The second level of insight, though, comes when we don't just understand it kind of cognitively, but we actually take it in and reflect on it based on our own experience. So how is this true for me? How have I experienced um, impermanence in my own life? Where do I see it? How has it impacted me? So it goes from being kind of theoretical to much more personal. That's a deeper level of insight, of understanding. The third level of insight comes, it's often described as the insight that comes through meditation. And really, I think of this as being the insight that comes from not just understanding impermanence, in this case, not just reflecting on how it's true, but actually seeing the truth of it in a moment. Because when we're practicing, when we are giving ourselves the gift of stopping and um, stopping our activity and the mind of go, 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 do, 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 and we're just giving ourselves time and space to sit still and observe what's happening right now, we have the opportunity in a moment to see the truth of, of impermanence. We can see a breath arise and pass away. We can see a moment arise and pass away. That it's, it's no longer cognitive, it's not even a reflection, it's the actual truth of what's happening right here, right now. That kind of insight is the insight that's described to be necessary for what, what we call awakening. We call, um, yeah, waking up, seeing the truth of how things are. So um, I think for most of us, as I said, we have some understanding of, yeah, I understand that there's impermanence. And yet, it's very hard for us to let it all the way in. There's a story of um, another story of one of the gods who, again, these gods have this omniscient vision and can see, see into the minds, hearts, lives of those of us living on earth. So in this story, it's actually Indra, who's the king of the gods. And someone comes to Indra, uh, uh, a seeker comes to Indra and says, with your omniscient vision, Indra, what is it that you think is the most amazing thing about human beings and life on earth? And Indra, I always think he could have said anything, right? What's the most amazing thing? And what he says is, the most amazing thing about human beings on Earth is that everyone, every human being on Earth, without exception, is going to die. And yet, everyone acts as if it's not going to happen to them. This gives a flavor of how difficult it is to really let that insight about impermanence all the way in. Sometimes we'll get it in a flash, or sometimes we'll get it when someone close to us uh, gets sick, or we get sick, or something happens where we can actually feel the fragility of our life in that moment, the passing of our life in that moment. But most of the time, we're not there. Most of the time, we're not actually living in that place. And this is part of the difficulty in some way about this truth of impermanence is that it's a difficult truth. It's actually hard for us to see and hard for us to bear in some way our own mortality, our own finiteness. And yet, if we're willing to be present with that truth to the best of our ability, the other side of it is that it can open us to the 
immense beauty of our life that isn't really accessible to us in a certain way without that. So um, I sometimes think about this in terms of the, the first years of practice in particular being kind of bittersweet. Bitter because often the content of what we're seeing as we begin to practice, I don't know about you, but lots for me and lots of other people I know, it's not always that pleasant. Right? We see how petty we are and how greedy we are and how jealous we are. And how, and we also begin to see some of the uh, general truths of the shape, color, form of reality itself, one of which is impermanence. So the content of what we see can be bitter, but the actual act of the experience of seeing clearly of awareness itself is enormously sweet. So it's a mixed piece. And a lot of, I think, the um, finding our way in the, I always think the first years of practice, but I think, you know, a beginner in practice is anywhere in the first 10 or 15 years counts for me as beginner in practice. So in those first 10 or 15 years, finding our way between, finding our balance in the ability to see the truth in this case, what can be a kind of the bitter truth of our impermanence, but staying, developing enough stability that we can stay with it so that the sweetness, so that the beauty of life itself in, in its impermanence can be revealed. So I want to um, uh, close with a couple more stories Um, about this, and I I think um, in uh, in the Zen tradition, which I kind of grew up in, um, there is a lot of emphasis on this um, old age sickness and death, on the truth of impermanence, on the truth of mortality. And um, I want to share a a story and then a piece from you from uh, Katagiri Roshi, who was one of the um, Japanese monks who came over to assist Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center. And um, um, Katagiri went on to found his own um, center in uh, in Minnesota in the Midwest. And there's a story about um, this kind of ragtag bunch of Zen students in uh, Minnesota at some point deciding that they wanted to have a fundraiser and to let people know more about their center and their practice and so on. So they, they set up tables with um, tablecloths and they ordered tea sets and they had this whole um, uh, party, essentially, that they created. And they and invited the essentially wealthy um, upper crust level of, of the um, um, city to come and invite them to, to hear about their practice. And they were all going along just fine. And at the end of this party, they invited Katagiri into the room to say a few words. And Katagiri had been speaking a lot to the Zen students about impermanence. And he wasn't going to change his tune for this sort of well-heeled, august crowd. And so apparently he stood up in front of the room and he looked at them all and he said, you are all going to die. (laughs) 
And apparently a bit like the wanderer Upaka, they all kind of, ah, you know, and they scurried out. And um, they didn't leave a lot of donations, which they had been hoping for. So it's interesting because I, I actually think it's, it's part of, well, again, I find it, I find it um, uh, helpful to know that, that like the Buddha with Upaka, he wasn't so skillful at first, that Category 2 was not always so skillful. Um, in how he was speaking. But um, I want to read for you uh, a much more, uh, I think it was a much more beautiful and kind of poetic piece that comes from uh, later writings of categories speaking to this truth of impermanence. So here's what he says. Sometimes at a restaurant or at the bank, you can see beautiful flowers And often, they are not real flowers. They are plastic. People like plastic flowers very much because they don't die. (laughs) Plastic flowers are cheap and economical, and if we buy only one bunch, that is enough for our whole life. (laughs) I'm, I'm appreciating this as I sit here with these beautiful flowers, which are not entirely brand new anymore, right? You can see them starting to fade a little bit if you look. They're still quite lovely. And there's a little bit of, you know, these are, this is what happens with real flowers. <laughs> so um, he says, even though we try to make plastic flowers exactly the same as living flowers, we never see the real beauty that we see in a living flower. A living flower is fading away. And that is why it is beautiful. The same applies to our life. We are going to the grave. It's a little gentler than you are all going to die. We are going to the grave. We are fading away. That is why we can really live. We should understand how to live within the limitations of human life based on the dangerous situation of our life fading away. We don't know when we will die. So we have to do our best to live wholeheartedly. That is called purity. It is very beautiful. We should understand how to live within the limitations of human life based on the dangerous situation of our life fading away. We don't know when we will die. So we have to do our best to live wholeheartedly. This is called purity. It is very beautiful. One of the things about this piece that is different either, I think, from the Buddha when he first was speaking to Upaka and he was saying, I, 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 right? I am the only awakened one. I am, I am, I am. Or Katagiri, when he stood up in front of this tea party and said, you are all going to die. He's speaking about we here. And this is where the beauty of impermanence comes in, is that it's a shared impermanence. This is true for all of us. And it creates a basis for our infinite connectedness. So just as I was imagining before what a different world it would be 
if we were to pause and reflect and consider, is it true, is it necessary, is it kind, before we speak, just take a moment and look around the room with this knowing of our shared impermanence and feel in yourself, perhaps, what a different world it would be if we engaged with one another from that truth. Not an intellectual truth and not even a personal truth, but a shared truth that is true for all of us here now. So I invite you to, um, to use, to play with, to enjoy um, both or any of the suggestions uh, about speaking and about um, holding this truth of impermanence close to you, to your heart, but also using it as a way to meet and engage one another. This is the, the dream that I hold often is, again, what, what would it be like? How would we behave? How would we speak to each other and, and uh, relate to each other differently if we were able to remember um, and keep that close? So um, let's just sit for a moment. Allowing ourselves to sense, to feel, to realize the truth of our own impermanence. Allows us to connect deeply to the same truth that we all share. This is how wisdom inspires compassion. We are going to the grave. We are fading away. That is why we can really live. We should understand how to live within the limitations of human life based on the dangerous situation of our life fading away. We don't know when we will die, so we have to do our best to live wholeheartedly. This is called purity. It is very beautiful. Thank you very much for your kind attention this morning. I would ring the bell, but I can't reach it. So. <laughs> Thank you.